Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. October 21st, a very big day in the Podhoritz household as this is the 64th anniversary of my parents, Norman Podhoritz and Midge Dector, 64 years married. Uh, and if you go to commentarymagazine.com, as I've been mentioning all week, you can read a conversation between me and my father, Norman Podhoritz, on the joys and sorrows and terrors and responsibilities of editing Commentary Magazine in our 75th anniversary issue. So with that, let me introduce, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, our old pal, MSNBC's Steve Kornacki, the cephologist. You're not really a cephologist. Are you a... You're a poll analyst. Does that make you a cephologist? Oh, boy, if I knew what a cephologist was, I might have a chance of knowing okay, the answer. Well, I believe <laughs> the answer is a cephologist is some form of a poll analyst or a statistics analyst. So you're not yourself a pollster, but you but right. you are like one of the one of the guys who dives deep into these matters. And we're really excited to talk to you because, of course, here we are. We are. Uh, 13 days before Election Day, and we're in this unprecedented situation where, I don't know, 35, 36, 37 million people have already voted, I believe, uh, which is, what is that? That's like uh, a fifth of the maybe the overall turnout or between a fifth and a fourth of the overall turnout already having voted. And we have a debate tomorrow night, the last debate, the having missed the middle second debate. Third and last debate, final debate, and it's going to take place, and 40 million people will have voted by the time the debate takes place. So you have a universe of like, uh, you know, three quarters of the electorate, uh, a quarter of the electorate already having, uh, is off the field. So um, in your experience, having analyzed these things, do debates, late debates matter? Do they, do, can they really have an effect. I mean, obviously, an effect of a point or two can be is a huge effect, let's say. But what it, what do you anticipate? Should should there be something that happens that has some effect on the race? Yeah, I mean, it's they could. Um, the famous example from an earlier era, obviously, I know you've talked about it. You know, nineteen eighty. The, the last uh, one of the final days of I think it was October 28th, 1980, Reagan Carter. Carter was still very much in the race. Reagan blew him away in the debate. And then it just the, the, the tide just broke. And, and that was that was the end of Jimmy Carter. Um, you know, 2012, if you think back eight years ago, now we're into an era where you're starting to have widespread early voting, not on the scale we're getting this year. But you had a lot of votes that were cast before the final debate in 2012. Um, that was roughly the same distance from Election Day as this one's going to be. Um, and you had a couple of things. The, the, the late break in 2012 was toward Obama, much more limited in, in scale, but it got as popular nationally up to four points. Um, could that have been from a little bit at least that final debate? Could it have been from Hurricane Sandy? There were a couple of things kind of in the mix, but, you know, potentially that final debate. Um, you know, helped Obama a little bit in 2012. I think in Trump's case, he needs this or something 
uh, you know, to get him a few extra points at least. So I think he, he, you know, there's an opportunity here for him. You know, I look at that question of like, uh, you know, let's say by tonight, you know, 35 million people, whatever, will have will have voted, whatever the number ends up at. Um, how many of those people, though, are partisans? You know, are, are we just with every early vote? Are we just taking one more committed Democrat, committed Republican who was always going to vote Democratic and always going to vote Republican and just kind of making it official? Um, you know, whereas there, we've always known right since January 20th, 2017, that there was a very, very small pool of people who were willing to change their mind potentially about Donald Trump. That hasn't changed for four years. And maybe that very, very, very small group are the ones who wait until the very end of the election, you know, to make up their mind. So I do think that's possible that the vast majority of people have made up their minds um, and, and it, this debate won't have any effect. That tiny, tiny group that Trump really needs to, to kind of connect with here in a closing stretch is still open to changing its mind. It, it could matter for them. So that's my question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but <clears throat> from the data that we've seen, um, Trump is expected to do very well on the election. Most of the election on election day than absentee or early. And so if there's elasticity as a result of this, his debate performance, um, it'll be more on his end than Joe Biden's end. And that's not necessarily something that he'll benefit from, right? So the president could energize his voters or he could depress them with another really lackluster performance, right? Right. I mean, and again, that's it's the expectation. You know, For example, if you go back and look at Florida in 2012, um, the early vote, the combined mail-in and early vote for Florida in 2012, Clinton won it by six. And I think everybody remembers the headlines from this time in 2012 of, oh, the Democrats can't believe these incredible numbers. Right? 2016, 2016, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, the Democrats can't believe these incredible numbers they're getting from the early vote in Florida and in other states. And I remember there was a line that you heard a lot in the fall of 2016 that, you know, the Democrats had been so good at the early vote in Florida they put Trump in a position where he would have to win the election day vote by 10 points. And it was unthinkable that somebody could win the election day vote in Florida by 10. He won it by 12. Yeah. And it, it, it was just a combination. It, it, there's still it's it, I think it's unresolved. There are conflicting theories out there about was this because there was a late flood uh, of pro Trump you know, or anti Hillary, whatever you want to call it, but a late flood of sentiment to go out and vote for Trump on election day? Or was it just always there? And was it just the case that Democrats so cannibalized their election day vote with this very concerted early vote effort um, that it, it you know, became a 12 point margin? You know, and I, I think that's sort of an unresolved debate. But it's, it's a long way of saying if the difference was Clinton by six in the early vote and Trump by 12 in the election day vote in 2012 and 2016. I don't know why I keep saying 2012. Um, the, the scale of that difference in Florida and elsewhere is going to be much larger this time. That's that's right. what the early vote numbers are telling me. Yeah, I mean the thing about though that 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 phenomenon, right? Which was uh, oh my god, they're banking all this early vote. Is in the end, if they cannibalize their election day vote with the early vote, it's still a vote is a vote, right? I mean, right. so when when they're all tabulated, there were more Trump voters than Hillary voters in Florida, whenever it was that they were going to vote. The the theory of early voting is aside from pandemic related stuff that. Uh, you're banking a vote because you can't be entirely sure people are going to look at the line when they show up and go, eh, I'm not going to wait here for two hours. I got something else better to do. I'm not sure in America that anybody has anything better to do, by the way, aside mm -hmm. from avoiding the line. 
But it's not like you can go to a movie. It's not like you can go. I mean, I guess in Florida, stuff is open. But, you know, it's not like there's so many more diversions uh, to to enjoy your life with or, you know, stuff to do that 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 will that will make that make that happen. But um, Florida is an interesting example, of course, because Florida is the one state that gives rise to the sentiment that the polling can be wrong because there was a polling error in Florida in 16 and then. Unlike everywhere else in the country, in the midterms, there were there was a polling error in Florida, aggregate polling error in Florida in 18, where uh, both Rick Scott and uh, Governor and, and, and DeSantis won, though I think the polling said that at least DeSantis was four points down and he won by, was it one? I guess he won by a point or something like that. So there was a five point polling error there. And so you look, and then people say, ah, you see, they never get Florida right. And this guy, Kahaley, the guy who runs Trafalgar, the one firm that is saying Trump has got it in the bag with 278 electoral votes, says he's won Florida already. I don't know how he knows that. I don't understand his methodology. Um, but so Florida is the, you know, Florida is this one example of the state that that the polling doesn't seem to be able to get or hasn't gotten including in 2012 right because obama found voters in 2012 uh in some of those mid florida counties that no one knew were there and he kind of won by two or something like that like he did better i'm not that he hadn't won in, in 2008 but but um obama was obama the obama machine did really well in florida so that was also sort of a, so it's like three election cycles or something where Florida wasn't great. Yeah. And I, I would say, look, I think collectively Florida and elsewhere, there was a polling error in 2012 that undercounted and didn't really get the extent of Obama's support. And you once you saw election night come in, you saw it in Florida, but you saw it in other states, too. And I mean, that led to that whole scene on, on Fox News on election night 2012, where Karl Rove couldn't believe what he was seeing because this wasn't what the polling had had anticipated. Then in 2016, you know, the polling error went the other way. It didn't capture, didn't anticipate the Trump support. 18, what, what caught my eye in 2018 is I think it was bigger than just Florida. Um, it doesn't get talked about a lot because um, the national polling was correct in that the Democrats were poised to get the House. They did get the House. They got a 40-seat gain in the House, and it, it captured that. State races that we didn't talk about a lot, there were polling errors, though, in 2018. Um, Missouri, Indiana, Tennessee, North Dakota, Ohio governor's race, Iowa governor's race. I would even say the Senate race in Michigan in 2018. Democrats won, but the margin was lower than people have been talking about. So I, I think there was... In states with large blue-collar white, non-college white populations, a.k.a. the Trump base, I think there was a miss in 2018 as well. And I think it was it was akin to the miss in 2016. Um, and there's this whole debate that, you know, I'm sure you hear it, you follow these polls so closely. Um, oh, the pollsters have, have uh, figured it out because they now wait for education. You know, maybe true, but they were waiting for education in 2018. And also some of them, Marquette Law, were waiting for education in 2016 when the 2016 error happened. So all a long way of saying, like, I'm not convinced that in those types of states, large non-college white population states, I'm not convinced the issue um, that 2016, 2018 point to has been resolved. That is probably the biggest overhanging question I have when we look at all the polls right now, everything suggesting 
Biden's in great shape. I tend to I, I look at it and I tend to take it at face value. But then when I say maybe it's not quite what it looks like, that's that's the thing that the polling errors in 16 and 18. That's what gives me pause. Well, that might also strangely explain a question I've had the last few weeks watching Trump campaign, because, I mean, I know the conventional wisdom is he should be reaching beyond his base, right, to people who he needs to to, to win, um, particularly suburban women who, you know, he's doing very poorly with, with, with women. But if that's correct, then it would make sense that he would double down on his base message, right? Attack Anthony Fauci, attack the media, do all the things that actually have worked for him in the past, Um I don't think that I don't think he's a very sophisticated candidate when he's on the trail, but he definitely knows what messages to hit. And I've been surprised in these final weeks to watch him double down on the strategy that worked for him in 2016 when we've all been saying, doesn't he need to broaden his base? And we have seen movement with Hispanic voters in particular and and also some with African-American voters. So I just it's a really unusual moment, I think, to look at the polling data that we that we have and then to look at his message. It doesn't seem to comport with it. But what you're suggesting is that it might actually. And we I mean, we won't know until after the election's over. But I, I like that theory. It's interesting. That's good. <laughs> Well, and um, I always I always suspect there's just a difference between, you know, what what uh, Bill Stepien or the, the the sort of professionals around Trump would draw up as the message. I, I swear the the Trump thing is 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 no more sophisticated than he he goes with his gut. He goes with his instinct and he assumes it will produce a win. And, right. Right. Yeah. So we, well, we've had two yeah. cycles now, both 2016 and 2018, where the polling didn't accurately capture the Republican vote. It could go couple of points in, in the Republican direction beyond beyond what we're seeing in the polls right now. That's probably not enough to put Donald Trump over the top. But where does it put Republican Senate races? I mean, if you're talking about failing to capture white voters, what are the what are the majority maker races here? Maine, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, and to a lesser extent, Colorado and Arizona. I mean, is there is there a scenario here in which you see the Cook political report saying, look, it's, this is almost over for Senate Democrats. They're going to be in the majority next year. Is that is that really true? Are we at a place now where we can call that? Doesn't sound like it. Yeah, no, I, but I would, I would, I would agree when you say Democrats are favored for that because the 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 battleground for the Senate is different than 2018. You know, Republicans got to got to defend uh, their majority in 2018 in Tennessee. You know, I mean, they, they were on offense, but it, it was Tennessee, it was North Dakota, it was Indiana, it was Missouri, it was states like that, even Montana, West Virginia, where they had near misses. You know. Um, it, I think you're pointing to something, though, in 2018, that that other ingredient that wasn't there in 16. And you guys talk about this. I know a lot uh, on this show is that surge of Democratic interest in suburbs and metro areas. So it took a state like Arizona that Trump had won in 2016. But because of Maricopa County, Democrats win it in 2018. Every indication is that's still there in 2020. So it takes like a Senate race in Arizona. And it's the, the, the key variable no longer the key variable becomes the the, the college educated sort of metro maricopa county you know vote and i think it puts democrats at an advantage in arizona colorado same thing Den- they flipped house seats in, in colorado 2018 same dynamic there i think maine it's that you know, congressional district in the portland area really that's you know i think biden's probably going to win by 25 30 points north carolina's uh, you know i guess you could make an argument there that you could get a flood of of, of uh, sort of rural white votes there Democrats might counter that with higher African-American turnout. You know, we'll see in North Carolina. Um, but I think it's it's one of those where even if there's a miss with blue collar white voters in the polling again in 2020, the battleground for the Senate shifted in a way where, where Democrats wouldn't be hurt as much by it. Um, so, so I just want to say 
all this leads me to believe, just to bring it back to the, to the, uh, Thursday's debate, that um, there are some actual stakes here, precisely because there's this perception, we don't know to what extent the perception is accurate or not, that the polls may not be capturing how tight the race is, right? So the, the, the question of whether or not the, the debate changes anything kind of rests on this other question about the accuracy of the polling. If, 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 the, if, the, if the race is tighter than mo the overwhelming majority of the polls indicate, then yeah, then, then, then a bump, John, as you say, of two points or something w could make a difference. Right. Well, the one thing I would say, though, is it, it depends on whether what, what you're saying is that uh, the polling is wrong in some ways uniformly in Trump's direction, that it's not capturing uh, the uh, Trump's strength everywhere, including in states that are not similar to other states. Like Arizona does not bear that much relation to Ohio. If Ohio is actually a jump ball and Trump won by eight, Something's going on in Ohio, but that doesn't mean that you can then extrapolate from that to what's going on in Arizona and whether that race is closer. The classic rule of thumb is that the states that are demographically similar, right, the Rust Belt states are demographically similar. So uh, one of the reasons to think that uh, Biden may be as strong as he looks in the Midwest or in the upper Midwest, is that Ohio's close. Like, there may be a polling error in Ohio, and, you know, uh, Trump may win by four, but if he wins by four, uh, that's four points off where he was, and if that is, if you parallel that in the three states that won in the election, that's the game for Biden. Like, he can't, you know, so it's not like the polling error can all be, all polling errors and advantages go in one direction like that. That's not how random sampling error works. Right. That if we're talking about polling errors, opposed to a failure to understand the electorate. In other words, if the if the if there's a mismeasurement because the polls are mismeasuring, that's a that's a mathematical effect, not a sociological. Do I have that right, Steve? Yeah, no. And I, I mean, I think that's the the Trump folks will tell you the polls are. I think you mentioned the Trafalgar one. That it seems to be the argument. I listened to an interview with uh, with and I can't remember his name, but the Trafalgar pollster the other day, Robert Cahali. That's okay. Yes, yeah. and and I mean his that is his argument is that the the polls are missing essentially. I think blue collar white voters, and that that's going to because it is it's consistent. You could look at a poll um, anywhere from North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Maine. Pennsylvania, any of these states that have substantial non-college white populations or just substantial white populations, and you see what looks like pretty uniform movement away from Trump toward Biden. So I can you know, look at a poll in Wisconsin, you know, and Trump won the uh, in the exit poll, Trump won the non-college white vote in Wisconsin by 28 points in 2016. And you, polls now show that about eight points, you know, give or take, but, you know, like high single digits. And you see that movement. But you could also look at the second congressional district of Maine. You know, it's Western Maine. I think it has the highest percentage of non-college white voters of any congressional. It's like 80 percent non-college white, something like that. Trump won it by 10 points in 2016. When you see a poll from that district, I see polls with Biden ahead in that district right now. So it reflects the same demographic movement. So it really does become when we say polling error. Yeah, it, it really, if, if the. Um, if the Trump argument about this ends up being right, it ends up being more, 
I think, the Trafalgar argument that there's just a systematic miss of a type of voter. But having listened myself to Rich Lowry's interview with Kahali, which I think I talked about uh, earlier in the week, um, he leans very heavily on the social desirability bias problem, that people don't want to tell pollsters that they're supporting Trump. There, it seems to be, is an issue here with the understanding of social desirability bias, because I can see how that's real in precisely the suburban districts that went for Democrats in 2018, that if you're living in Maricopa County or you're a, you know, you're a suburban woman in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, or Birmingham, Michigan, or something like that, and you want to vote for Trump, that you, you're, you choke on it as you're t- talking to a pollster and you're not going to say it. But in the main second, I don't see where there's a social desirability bias against Trump. I mean, it may, in fact, be the opposite. And in the places where Trump needs to run up the vote, the way you're talking about, these are people whose friends and neighbors are more like, way more likely to be Trump voters than they are to be Biden voters. And therefore, you're not like a secret, you know, you're not a Murano or a Converso hiding there, lighting your candles in the, in the dark. You know, you would be much more likely to hide your Biden candle. Yeah, no, I'm I'm skeptical of it for that reason. For I, I think you talked about this this week too. Uh, Republican Senate candidates who are much more generic Republicans are pretty consistently running behind Trump in the polling too. And again, you would think if there's a something specific to Trump, people would have no problem saying I'm with the Republican Senate candidate. Um, it, it gets into this interesting debate too about. I could just tell you quickly. This is something our polling partner here at NBC Marist. Uh, they do our state polls. And they are doing something different than other pollsters to get to this question we're talking about. What they think they learned from 2016 and 2018 is that, okay, there's non-college white voters and there's college white voters. And supposedly the great lesson of 16 is we don't have enough non-college white folks in the sample. We got to make sure to do that. We got to wait for it. That's what most people took and most people are doing. Mara said that's not enough because their research is finding that if you are a non-college white voter, but you live in an area, a suburban area outside Philadelphia or whatever, you're surrounded by whites with a college degree. It is a culturally college white place. The voting behavior is culturally college white. And they believe there was a bias in the polling where the people most, the non-college white voters most likely to pick up the phone are in college white areas. And so they've developed a methodology here to go it's very geographic specific. It's very zip code specific to places that are culturally non-college white. So right. as they announced it this summer. The polling yeah. you know, community was, my God, this is they, they, they weren't too pleased with it. I was very curious to see it. Um, but that what did that deliver in, in Pennsylvania? It was a Biden plus nine. So. Right. Well, the other. So we, you know, rest and rely rely on these on these numbers. And the the I, I had this I, I postulated this theory the other day that has no has literally no um, social science to back it up. But if you look at Trump and you think he's got some kind of animal cunning political genius for understanding things, which is sort of what 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 Christine is wondering about, uh, the fact that he cannot get off talking about Fauci and masking and all of that, is whether is there, This I think I said this the other day, it, it's not that there is a shy uh, Trump vote, it's that there's a shy anti-masking vote. 
that people are telling pollsters by margins of three or four or five to one that they believe in all restrictions on everything and relating relating to the pandemic. But maybe they're lying to pollsters about that because a no not ninety percent of people aren't wearing masks and b I don't know you know like when he talks I, I granted it's the rallies and there are his own people and everything but when he talks about the masking and Fauci's an idiot and you know wear a mask or don't wear a mask what do I, does he know I mean it's just maybe they're all lying about and they know it's like saying i smoke like you know more people smoke than tell pollsters that they smoke because more cigarettes are sold in the united states than people say they smoke and it's like i don't know if it's that big but people who are like i can't live like this anymore and joe biden's gonna put a mask mandate on me but see, it's gonna I, make I, me wear a mask i, don't, I would yeah. push back on that in this sense i think what they really don't want they, they want an end the pandemic, right? They want they want to sort of it's gone on forever. It feels purgatorial. We don't know when it's going to stop. Those people, I think, are more willing to gamble on Biden because I a I don't think that they believe he's going to have a mask mandate. He said that once or twice, and then they've pretty much retreated from that. And when press have said, well, we couldn't, we we would just bring everyone together in the White House and urge governors to have a mandate. So it, they backed way off of that very quickly and wisely, I think. But I do think a lot of people are willing to bet on a Biden uh, presidency doing something different. They just want something to end. And I think that's where the polarization that Trump uh, produces in the American electorate, even if you like Republicans in general, he is so polarizing in the way that Hillary was so polarizing that I think, I mean, it, it's more of a combination of fatigue and this, you know, endless purgatorial sense of lockdowns right. and shutdowns and spikes and that people just want it to stop. It's literally a stop, but like, just stop. Everybody stop. Try this guy for a while. I mean, but also, people, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about what the president actually says, I mean, it, the notion that he has some secret sauce here is betrayed by what he talks about at these rallies where he gives away his internals, where he goes, yeah, no, it's suburban true. women, why the don't id, you love it's me? All the id. And seniors, <laughs> I'm going to, I love you. I'm going to give you a $200 gift certificate for pharmaceuticals. Take and then, you know, he's trying drug. to, yeah, he's, and, and whatever pander he, he whips out, like it betrays his understanding of his, his precarious political position. But we keep saying, like, what happens if he, you know, if he wins, then when he wins, then we'll look back and we'll say he did X. So now we're in this position of being at the moment when we're going to look forward in the future back to the past if he wins and then say, what did we miss? And I, that's why I'm wondering if you actually think that this is a possibility that the thing that people think is going to get him elected is going to get Biden elected, which is, you know, Trump's associated with the pandemic and, and how, you know, and whatever is maybe he is speaking to an American id about the pandemic that is going to that is going to express itself in the most secret way that you you can possibly imagine. It's like the Bradley effect, <laughs> but it's about masks, you know, uh, not about Trump, not about social desirability bias relating to Trump. It's about all you nanny state people are making this worse. I don't know. I mean, I, as, since it's set, it's a sentiment, it's not a developed political opinion. Uh, you know, and I think that something in all of us says it doesn't feel like Biden is running away with this. It's it's like, you know, it, you look at it and it looks like Biden is running away with it. But somehow it doesn't feel like Biden. the way that, the way that's, ex 
don't like Clinton was running away with it in 1996, and believe me, everybody felt it. And Dole was like campaigning when Dole said, "Where's the outrage, America?" He was in Texas because he had to go to Texas. Did he stay he up for like 48 Texas. hours too? He well, did all these later. weird stunts at the end yeah. that just were epic films. But I, but actually, John, I think no, that's, that's right. That, and it's, that it's, stunt may have helped him a little bit. Dole. I mean, I think there was a thought that Dole was like 15 down, and he kind of like closed well and it ended up with him nine down but all i'm saying is but his dignity was the real victim yeah, but, there um, but, no but but, the, the, but yeah. the signs you see the yard signs that say any functioning adult 2020 which i see all over the place and not just in dc but i mean yeah. you see that i think captures what you're expressing john which is i mean the enthusiasm there's not a lot of enthusiasm for biden there's an enthusiasm for anyone other right. than trump right among yeah. a lot of people who i know i mean again anecdata People who would generally consider themselves Republican voters feel that, too. And it's not because they hate to wear masks. They think of themselves as responsible people who will wear masks if they need to. It's the chaos part. They just want yeah. the chaos to end. And the pandemic is, in their minds, related to that sense of chaos, right? Because they can't control that. They at least want to be able to feel like whoever is in charge has some control over something, including his Twitter habits, something basic, yeah. like the sort of self-discipline yeah. that's lacking in his leadership yeah. style, which was energizing four years ago, is not energizing now. It's worrisome. Right. Um, let me let me just back off for a second and take a pause and talk to you about today's sponsor, Tommy John. Not the pitcher and not the surgery, but rather the clothing line that is so incredibly comfortable, and particularly when it comes to your skivvies. Because, you know, if you want to push yourself to the edge, go beyond, seek discomfort, no pain, no gain. All that is for you if you want it. But not in your pants. Let's get real, like real comfortable in Tommy John underwear. Because from working hard to playing hard, when you start every morning in Tommy John underwear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. That's why Tommy John underwear doesn't have customers. They have converts. Because with dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John, you'll never go back. With breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, it moves with you. Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. The legs never ride up. It's listed on GQ's latest 10 essentials with Kevin Hart. Over 96% four-star plus reviews. Over 12 million pairs sold. But you just got to try them for yourself. They sent me some. They're great. Because Tommy John underwear feels so good, so free, so barely there. It's like going commando without the risk. And their best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee means there is no risk. Try Tommy John, and if you don't love them, they're free. Get that much more comfortable at TommyJohn.com slash commentary and save 15% on your first order. Save 15% right now at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. TommyJohn.com slash commentary. Okay, so moving on to uh, the interesting question of whether uh, can the press Steve, do you think, can the press hold it together between now and Election Day? And I, 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 it's not really the press. It's kind of general uh, liberal opinion or something like that. Because um, Jake Tapper yesterday had on a guy who I gather was briefly the publisher of The Hill, a tech guy named uh, Greenberger, uh, who said he believed that uh, what really needed to happen was for Trump's uh, the Trump and the Trump campaign 
their Twitter feeds and social media and ads on Facebook and everything had to be shut down between now and the election. Know that that it's an extreme measure, but it has to be taken because our democracy is at, is at risk and it has to happen. And I would ordinarily say, OK, why am I even mentioning some lunatic tech idiot who was only briefly the editor of the publisher of The Hill? But, um, you know, when I there's a lot of stuff going on that suggests to me this thing we've been talking about, which is this li- liberal panic that somehow uh, Trump is going to hypnotize the American people into winning again, and that they have this wind. There's this window, and they can somehow use the window. They can shut. The, they take the window, and they can like you know barricade the window so that he doesn't climb through the window. And uh, how is that? Can we can we get to election day? without everyone going insane. I know you I know you work at MSNBC so maybe it's a little bit of an unfair question. Uh, Noah and I of course are also contractually connected to MSNBC so I I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just like wondering like how I the, All the present company I, excluded. I can I, I could put it this way. I drove through the Berkshires uh, recently and uh, I think I the the level of anxiety you're describing I could I could feel everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Every mile that I drove so I could speak to the sentiment that I picked up on the Berkshires. Uh-huh. Um, and it's yes, it's a, an incredibly pronounced. And it's you know, it's funny because, you know, we, we we talked at the beginning here and I think everybody our reference point. Right. Is always the last election. We're always fighting the last war. Everybody remembers, you know, how Trump pulled a rabbit out of the hat in 2016. And so the question is, can he do it again? And and again, like I, I have, you know, I, I when I see these. Uh, forecasters that say it's it's 85 percent, you know, 80 percent, whatever number you want to put on Biden. Um, I mean, in my gut, that that feels about right. But you're of course, you're wondering, hey, Trump did this once before. Could he do it again? And, and I give you my doubts are I think there you know, there could be an understatement of the blue collar white support for him in some of these key states and kind of broadly speaking. But then the other side of it is just and, and, and I know you talk about this a lot. 2018. I mean, 2018 showed us something that moved. Um, electorally in this country, and, and that was these metro areas, these suburban areas. It moved from 16 to 18. Uh, Trump's performance, um, forget the, the non-college white for a minute, uh, college-educated white voters, Trump's support, uh, standing, I should say, in 16 was bad relative to recent Republican performance, to modern Republican performance, but it wasn't nearly as bad as Republicans had feared and Democrats had hoped in the run-up to the 2016 election. I remember looking at the counties right outside Philadelphia, the Democrats thought in 2016 they could win by 20 points. You know, when Chuck Schumer had that famous line, he said, you know, every vote we lose in southwest Pennsylvania, we're going to gain two in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Trump ended up only losing those counties by nine points. And you saw that in metro area after metro area in 2016 is one of those ingredients. Floor didn't fall out for him in the metro areas. Huge non-college white support, all this stuff that, that put it just enough for him to win. Well, the floor fell out in 2018, you know, for Republicans in places like that. And, and there's every indication that's continued to happen. So I think that's a, the major thing that's changed. Um, Biden's not Hillary. All, all that baggage, you know, 25 years of, of the Clintons that she brought is gone. Uh, Trump's the incumbent, not the challenger. Uh, his lead has been larger, steadier than Clinton's was over. I, all a long way of saying I hear all the anxiety based on, you know, 
the very peculiar set of circumstances that happened in 2016. Um, and yet there is, to me, a scenario where this this is as smooth as for Biden as the polls make it look right now. And there's there isn't a lot of strategic savvy behind what Trump is doing. It actually is alienating more than it's bringing in. Um, and, and the sorts of of uh, Rube Goldberg schemes or whatever that you're describing that, that sort of resistance types come up with to try to prevent 2016 from happening and only have the potential to muck up what might otherwise be a pretty a pretty clear cut victory for Democrats. Well, um, you know, I'm reminded of 2004 uh, in this sense, which is that uh, for people who were partisans of, of, of George W. Bush, the fall, that fall was nerve wracking and it was nerve wracking because it was close and it was clearly very close. And, but, uh, the polling was, um, was sort of on the balance favorable to carry and only Rasmussen, uh, it wasn't the current Rasmussen. It was Rasmussen under Scott Rasmussen, which was a different polling firm with the same name. Um, only Rasmussen was sort of seeing uh, Bush with sort of like a three-point lead. And so a friend of mine would say to me, you know, like in the middle of the afternoon, I just, I need one of those Rasmussen. I just need a Rasmussen poll. <laughs> I, I need a Rasmussen. Because, you know, and, 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 uh, and you know, a story would come out, this uh, story at the end of 2004 about this um, ammunition dump at Al-Qaqa in Iraq that had been, hadn't been guarded and people were stealing all the weapons out of it. And this was a failure of the Bush administration. And that was the late hit that was in the New York Times the week before the election. Everyone was like, oh, this is crap. And, or they were terrified it was going to work and what was going to happen and, and, and all of that. And this whole, you know, the extreme anxiety that the result that you wanted uh, you were going to be denied, but it was close. Now that election ended up almost exactly parallel to Obama in 2012, right? It was four points, three or four points, 51-48. I guess Obama was 51-47 against Romney. Um, and so it was comfortable, but, uh, but uh, there was an incredible anxiety. And Biden is like doing twice as well as that. I mean, uh, Biden... I think is in a, the strongest position that any that anyone has been in in one of these races since Dole, since Clinton versus Dole in '96, right? Yep. I mean, we're not just talking about a poll a, a, a polling error, which would be a, a three or four points, and then a misreading of the electorate uh, or a total misunderstanding of the electorate by a, a mis by misweighting and all of that in this entire industry we're talking about like the the destruction of the polling business if this is wrong like there will be no polling business after this and what people say is oh the response rate was down to five percent no one was answering the phone and everybody was answering the phone's already a partisan and so you really can't measure it republicans don't want to answer the phone democrats do because they want to say they're for biden yada da 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 and all of that and that's not correctable <laughs> there's no way to correct for it and it's all over. And so that's why I think when I read all this stuff or hear Kahali or all that talk, you know, these guys, Maris, Quinnipiac, these fur, you know, the, uh, these businesses that do this or universities or whatever, I mean, they don't, they don't want to get it wrong. Like there, there are massive consequences 
think of the hit that Gallup took in 20, you know, Gallup's reputation has not, you know, did not recover from 2016. Gallup got out of presidential daily polling or whatever, basically quit the business that it had created. It was the only pollster in America for like 40 years, practically, right? Now it's out. Okay, so, uh, I, I, I just want to make, I, I just want to yeah. make a point about the about the panic that we've been talking about. Uh, it's called the panic among liberal opinion, as you say. Um, I think that uh, so many are so scared that they're missing something, because in fact, I think objectively they know they are missing something, which is um, a some sort of understanding of Trump's support. It is the, the very phenomenon is so alien to them that they have no idea what else it could mean and um, in what nooks and crannies it could be hiding and where it comes from and how it will show its face. Uh, Steve, let me ask you this uh, in relation to the Hunter Biden story. Uh, so I, I assume that the Hunter Biden story will come up at least once tomorrow night in the debate, if not more often and you know Trump will run over to Biden's microphone if his microphone is muted to say Hunter Biden 17 times in the microphone whatever he can do um is there assume that there's no moment where you know the FBI director comes out and says you know Joe Biden is being indicted for you know his son uh is there evidence that a late-breaking story like – it's not even that late, right? Or it's, it is late because the people are already voting – makes a di- – I, I know that the classic story of the making a difference late hit was the Bush uh, – George W. Bush's DUI, which came out, I think, six or seven days before the election. And Carl Rove says it cost him three million votes. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but, I mean, that's, that's what was said. But this isn't a personal – this isn't – he did something and covered it up for 25 years and, you know, whatever. Though you can't really believe that that actually happened, that somebody, a 1976 DUI cost someone 3 million votes in 2000, not with everything that's happened since. But is there is there a is there a comparable kind of story that surfaces that's old but new but comes up and there's the, the leaks and this that can actually kind of like work as an earworm or some kind of earwit like to to kind of change things a little bit? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it was three million, by the way, but I, I do believe the 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 Bush thing in 2000. I mean, because if you go back and look at the polling from that campaign, it, this is so hard for people. I, I remind Democrats of this all the time because they, the you know, abolish the Electoral College is such a huge thing now. And I say a week before the 2000 election, Bush was going to win the popular vote and Gore had a shot to pull out the Electoral okay. College. That was the expectation. And yeah. I swear that the DUI thing is the reason that got flipped around right. um, in 2000. So I don't know the exact number of votes, but I buy it. Um, you know, but the thing is, when you think of that one. You could. I don't think it ended up altering the '92 election, but Lawrence Walsh coming out late and reindicting Casper Weinberger and implicating Bush and all that it certainly didn't help his campaign. Late, um, Hillary Clinton with Comey in 2016. It was all directly the revelation or whatever was all directly tied to the candidate. And this one, you know, is the candidate's troubled son and addiction issues and. I just wonder if it's if it's land and, and a candidate also who's known for family, personal tragedy. And, you know, it, I just wonder if if 
um, the country through knowing the Joe Biden story for, you know, with his son dying five years ago and before that, you know, with, with his wife and in, in, back in, in 1972. I just wonder if the country has kind of been primed any story about Biden, about his kids, even if it brings in any kind of question about, you know, influence, if they're primed to read this, as, especially one with, with Hunter and all of his troubles as sort of a, you know, this is this is an addiction story. This is a tragic, a family tragedy story. And and um, doesn't land the way Comey coming out and saying the Hillary Clinton email case is reopened 10 days before the election, you know, does. That's that's the impression I'm getting that there's just when it comes to his family, there is just a groundswell of, of, of a reservoir of sympathy for Joe Biden and and kind of uh, I think it insulates him from this kind of this kind of line of, of inquiry a little bit. And Trump cannot tell a story. He can he, not extemporaneously. Yeah. He references stories and assumes you're already pretty familiar with them. So if Hunter Biden comes up, he's going to go, oh, you know, the Hunter Biden thing. I don't no, know. <laughs> I don't know the Hunter Biden thing. Why don't you fill me in? No, with the Hunter Biden, with the story, with the New York Post and the, and the, the China and the laptops. This is a criminal enterprise. Facebook and Twitter. And they're trying to they're, they're silencing you. Well, but even if you even if you buy a direct connection with Joe Biden's career in Washington, D.C., and the way it has enriched personally Joe Biden and Joe Biden's uh, immediate family, that's also a known story. I mean, just look at the credit card industry's relationship with Joe Biden. It's not as if I feel like there's not a real aha or gotcha that's that's news to most people who have followed his career. There's also, again, the sort of cynicism uh, about how Washington works that people kind of just shrug and accept, which is that a lot of senators go to Washington not being wealthy people. They leave Washington extremely rich. So, I mean, Biden has done very well as a senator on on uh, a salary that doesn't really add up if you look at his his world and his family. But that's true for everyone. And, and Noah's absolutely right that in, in about children uh, benefiting from uh, proximity to power, Trump cannot tell that story at all. I just well, don't feel like there's a clear it, that story is very complicated. And in, in the case of Ukraine and Burisma and, and Hunter and China and and that uh, Trump can if you already know a narrative that's been well laid out. And this, I think, is a, is a weakness of his campaign. They haven't constructed a reasonable narrative that people can latch on to. That's why I think the censorship of the story became the story, because that was an easy story to tell. And it was told over and over again on on the right and in conservative media. And people well, have heard that story. It's arguably the more important story anyway. That is to say, sure. yeah, if you could prove that, you know, Joe Biden got 10 percent of Hunter Biden's fifty thousand dollars a month in a you know, under the yeah. table. Uh, then you would have a then you would have something. But, it, you know, without that, the 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 sin or the con the controversy here all involved the oh, my God, no one can be allowed to read this story because morons in America aren't going to be able to resist voting for Trump with his magical powers over your brain. You know, so we need to keep it away from you and keep it silent. Meanwhile, you know, Biden puts Biden goes silent for four days because Biden's strategy is to let Trump hang himself. That is the Biden the Biden communicate campaign communication strategy is I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. Let him talk. Go have rallies. You know, you know what? Everybody should air the MSNBC should air the rallies and CNN. Everyone air the rallies because that's where. People are going to look at him and go, eh, I don't want to I don't want four more years of this. That seems to be their 
positive strategy. Like he's going to, you know, uh, you know, that's what they think is, uh, is good for them. Um, can we, Steve, before yeah. we go, can we ask, I mean, the, all the, the polling news is really rather disastrous for Republicans and we can try to find some bright spots, but it's pretty awful, but there is an exception just to give our listeners a hit of the good stuff, uh, all the polling around Amy Coney Barrett. Um, <clears throat> Morning console has a piece out today. Our Morning Council Political has a poll out today, shows 51% approve of her confirmation, um, more than a plurality, I believe, won a confirmation vote before the election. They've been polling this since September 26th on the, the day she was announced, and it was just 37%. So the trajectory is moving in her direction, matches yeah. with Gallup, which also found 51% in support of her confirmation, albeit without a timeline. And then you have New York Times, Siena yesterday, which is the big one, which showed 47% to 39% won or confirmed before the election, and also court packing, which is a complete disaster for, for Democrats. It's upwards, I think it was like 60%, almost 60% of people did not approve of the idea of adding new justices to the court, including a third of Democrats. Um, the Democratic strategy along these lines seems to have been to um, fail to fail to attack Amy Coney Barrett well, and introduce a whole bunch of new issues into the national dialogue on which they're also losing. But you know what's interesting about this? That's movement in the polls, right? Right. Two months ago, or when when she was nominated, like uh, Democrats did not want her, did not want this hearing. The polling was bad for Trump, all of this. And this is where you see when people say, oh, the polls are moving. It's not that a poll goes from plus 10 to plus eight, and that's a huge, that's, oh my God, Mm -hmm. that's movement. Things are really changing. It's when somebody goes from 27% to 47% or 51%, that's, that's movement. That's where you have momentum and not, not that she's running for office, but, um, we, we some of us look at this so granularly that you see a poll go from plus 10 to plus nine and you're like, oh, ooh. and that is literally noise. Like, I mean, it's not, you know, the, this is not a this is not a fine tuned measure. Noah was like puzzled the other day. Fairly enough. I think uh, IBD tips poll, which is the one that is now closest, that actually has it essentially a two or three point race. They were down to tenths of a point. They were like, they were like, it's 51 points, 50, 49.8 to 46.4. That old like, Really? Really? You're, po- you're pulling 200 people a day. Like that, you can't do that. Like it's not, you know, if you had 10 billion people, you know, then you could maybe get to a tenth of a point. But, um, so Steve, what do you, uh, if you're, if you're up all night, on election on election night, do do you have any sense with all of this early voting? I, I guess you must, but like the states that are going to decide the election, supposedly, you know, the tipping, you know. So obviously, it's like if Biden wins Florida early, if they have that, if Biden wins Florida early, then then Trump is, you know, he may not be finished, but that's right. like huge, right? So and that's the first state that I guess will come in. Yeah. We're okay. seven o'clock and the state right. law in Florida is within. We'll see if they're able to do this, but within 30 minutes of poll closing, remember split closing panhandle will be eight o'clock Eastern, but yeah. seven o'clock for most of the state. They have to report out all of their early vote and all of the mail in vote that they've been able to tabulate. Right. So we have the possibility in that first hour in Florida 
all of the eastern time zone counties, which is most of the state, to right. get most of the vote. Right. OK, so there you have if that goes Biden's way, then Trump is like it's the guns of Navarone and he's got to climb a sheer wall face in order to in order to prevail. But like the others, like uh, Pennsylvania, which we know now will be allowed to count votes uh, three until three days after the election day. But so Pennsylvania, will will there be sufficient amount of vote, assuming that it's not razor thin by midnight or something? Do we know anything like that? I, I think there's going to be look famous last words here because yeah. you, you know you never see the hanging chads coming until you know. But um, based on what what we've been hearing from these states and and I think that Florida was doing a COVID style election before COVID, massive mail-in voting, extensive early voting, you know, some same day but manageable. So you know, and Florida does not have you, know, you mentioned that if the ballot's not in by election day, that's it. So I think Florida, you know, if nothing unforeseen happens, we could get close to a, we could basically get a full result from Florida. And you're right on the stakes right there. The other one, though, North Carolina. Polls are going to close it in, in North Carolina at 730. And it's very similar in the state law. They got to get that uh, early vote reported out and the mail vote that they've got tabulated very quickly. They do allow for uh, ballots postmarked by election day to be counted up till three days later. I don't expect and they don't expect that that's going to be a huge number. That, that come in. But if it's razor thin, you got to wait on that. But I think we're going to get a, a pretty good picture from North Carolina. I think we're going to get a pretty good picture from Texas, um, you know, about nine Eastern. Uh, again, about 80 percent of their vote already was early before this. Not a ton of mail in voting in Texas. So that's not going to be a huge factor. So I think we're going to get a pretty good look at Texas on election night. Uh, you're going to get a, a Virginia, which, you know, could be, a, you know, likely who's going to win Virginia, but it could be a, you know, a barometer. Um, and, you know, then you get to those Midwest states. Yeah, I think Pennsylvania is going to take a few days. Michigan's going to take a few days. We may get some real numbers out of Ohio. I think that's one to watch. And Wisconsin is going to be slow, but I there's indications Wisconsin is going to count all night. And, you know, you might get four in the morning a result from Wisconsin or something like that. So right. there's potential here to get some, I mean, the way Georgia, by the way, Georgia, everybody's expecting a disaster in Georgia based on their primary, very possible it could happen again. But Georgia's also positioned at least on paper to give us a ton of vote on, on election night. Georgia's interesting because, you know, we keep reading that it's, you know, razor, you know, it's like 40, I guess the last poll was 45, 45. But I'm very suspicious of that because, like, really, there's 10 percent undecided in Georgia two weeks before the. That's where social desirability bias may be playing in, in like, you know, in 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 the in the ring counties of Atlanta, the liberal ring counties of Atlanta, where people are going to vote for Trump, but they really don't want to say they're going to vote for Trump. Like, there can't be 10 percent undecided in Georgia at this at this moment. So that, but um, but Texas is interesting, not because maybe, you know, Biden will win. I mean, obviously, if Biden wins, then we're talking about a blowout. But but if there is a margin in Texas like the Cruz O'Rourke margin in 2018, then Biden's going to win, I think. I mean, that's a that that would be a that would be a, a an example of of a national of, of the of the where the enthusiasm is. Yeah, it. I, I guess what I'd be looking at if, in a scenario where it's Cruz O'Rourke all over again in Texas, I guess it, here's the scenario where Trump wins Florida narrowly. Um, Trump is looks like he's actually going to pull out North Carolina and, and Georgia. 
and then Texas looks like 2018, you, that's where you start to say, wait a minute, is this thing where Trump could lose the popular vote by five points and still eke and it so out in the election? Yeah. That's when you start thinking, state like Texas, he gets all the electoral votes, but the margin comes from nine to three. Yeah. California, he loses five more points. New York, he loses five more. And he's, yeah. that's, if something like that started taking shape, that's where my yeah. mind would be at that point. Yeah. Well, we won't we won't force you to sit through our our scenarios of, you know, of cities on fire uh, if that happens, Steve, (laughs) you don't need that trouble with us. So thank you so much as ever for for joining us. I hope you get some sleep in the next two weeks. So you're so because you're not going to you may not sleep for a month. As I understand it. Or you may be asleep at midnight on election night. I mean, we who knows? You, one one more that, that, that early Florida call. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, but thank, it's always great to have you. And so for, for Noah, Abe and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.